0: Welcome, you're listening to Sansit, Where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine To become your true self We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd.
1: Hello and welcome. My name is Aaron O'Dowd and you're listening to Sunseed. On today's show we
0: have Eliezer Sobel. Eliezer Sobel is the author of Minion, Ten Jewish Men in a World that is Heartbroken. Selected by National Book Award winner John Casey as the winner of the prestigious Peter Taylor Prize for the novel. He is also the author of a memoir, The 99th Monkey, a spiritual journalist misadventures with gurus, messiahs, sex, psychedelics, and other consciousness-raising experiments. And Wild Heart Dancing, a personal one-day quest to liberate the artist and lover within. He also is the author of Blue Sky, White Clouds. In spending time with his 86-year-old mother in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease, Eliezer Sobel discovered something astounding. Even though she was no longer able to string together even two words in a row that made any sense, the fact remained that she could still read. Although she couldn't follow or track the storylines or even consecutive sentences of books or newspapers, she nevertheless continued to sit with rapt attention and flip through magazines and coffee table books, reading aloud the words in big print and commenting on the photographs. Over 5 million people in the United States currently suffer from Alzheimer's disease, and there are more than 30 million victims worldwide. Nearly 500,000 new cases are diagnosed yearly. Blue Sky White Clouds is a very simple picture book for these patients, with easy-to-read short phrases in large, bold print, illustrated by photographs of people, nature, and everyday objects. Those who have used this book with their loved ones who suffer from Alzheimer's state that it is a wonderful treasure to be able to share together again. And now, here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd, talking with Eliezer Sobel.
1: So, hello, Eliezer, and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, uh, Aaron. I appreciate you asking
1: me on. Ah, oh, excellent. Um, first of all, you have an 86-year-old mother who has Alzheimer's. Um, how did you come about it, or how did you discover that your mother had this particular disease?
2: Well, first of all, she, um She's actually at this point, 91, and still going. Gee, wow. And, and she lives with my father, who's 91, and they've been married 68 years, so it's quite an unusual situation, and I, I, I'm sort of leading around to the answer to your question, but just giving you the current picture, my dad, at age 90, which was, you know, a year and a half ago, was still fully functional and running the household. He Driving, cooking, shopping, hiring, and managing a team of aides for my mother, and um, that all came to an abrupt halt year, well, almost a yeah, year and a half ago, or more, when he um, fell down a flight of stairs and landed at the bottom of the steps on his head and had a near-fatal traumatic brain injury. And overnight, I had two. 90 something year old parents both pretty much infantile or infant like and needing full on care so overnight my wife and i actually moved into the house like this is my childhood home that i had you know that i hadn't lived in i'm 63 and i hadn't lived there since i was 17. i moved back and lived in the bed that i lived in when i was five I had to become my father to take over his life to run that household. It actually took us living in that house about ten months before we had enough systems in place and new aides that could live there, that we trusted and, you know, we had ten intense months of full-time caregiving for two 90-somethings. At this point, the system is in place and they're both uh, doing quite well, although that's all relative and my dad uh recovered i mean they gave him up for dead at the uh icu the intensive care unit a year and a half ago they told
3: us to call hospice and say our goodbyes and um all he needed was some hydration and, and i and again,
2: the doctor said well he didn't want heroic measures and i said i understand that but a glass of water is not all that heroic if you ask me so we um we had to ourselves take him out of this rehab he was in and bring him to an ER, get him some fluid. And he bounced back and over the course of the year ended up walking a mile a day, going on a bicycle machine, regaining a lot of his cognitive functioning and ability to converse and remember, although he did have some uh, short-term memory damage. But we sent the video to his desk doctor with Sim riding on the bicycle waving saying how are you <laughs> um,
3: so that's just to bring you up to date That we're still with us we're still there a lot although we're not living with them now but we still manage
2: the household and the aides we we're running a mini nursing home because my parents fortunately can afford it we have about 8 aides that come and go for different shifts providing 24-7 care for both of them so usually two at a time one for each and, um, so that's the current picture. Now you want some history,
1: I guess. Uh, first of all, before we go to history, I wanted to know how do, how did that affect you on a physical, mental, emotional level while looking after your parents and adjusting these aids and these systems for their life? Well, I would say enormously in, in that,
2: as you know, because you've... Looked into my past, little. I spent a good deal of my adult life from the time I dropped out of college in 1973 until not too long ago as a uh, very devoted spiritual
3: seeker who traveled around the world and stayed in ashrams and monasteries and visiting virtually every
2: living saint and messiah I could find and being a human guinea pig for every new workshop and new age human potential experience that came down the pike. And I have to say, I, I, I grew more and learned more spiritually and emotionally in the last couple of years than I, than I did from any of that, from even, you know, any of the 20-day silent meditation retreats I was on or some of the more wacky experiments I tried all the psychedelic drugs. I mean, I did it all, but I, I learned more just helping my dad get his diaper on um, and being with my mom than I did in all the previous years. It's just a very deepening, humbling experience. And There's a sacrifice or, or a letting go as you slowly realize the parent that you've had all your life is slowly fading before your eyes. And when it happened to my mom, I was more attuned to observing my father be unable to let go in that he would respond to her as if she was normal when everybody around could see she wasn't. So she would say absurd, typical, Alzheimerish things like, you know, I don't have a sister and my instead of my father, you know, you know Alzheimer's 101 when you're first learning how to take care of someone go with their reality, you enter their world, you don't try to contradict it, because in their world what they say is real. But my father could not get that lesson for
3: a number of years, so we would have to kind of painfully listen to him scream at our poor mother, you know, things like, of course you have
2: a sister, she was here five minutes ago, he just spoke to her, you know, trying to convince her of, of real reality. And it's a fruitless endeavor. I remember one day my mother actually took me aside and said, "Something's wrong with your father. He's been acting kind of crazy lately," <laughs> which was ironic. Um, so I I watched my father do that with her. You know, eventually he finally saw the light when it was so so obvious he couldn't miss it. But then when he started having similar symptoms from his brain injury, I watched myself react to him same way he had reacted to my mom I would become impatient I would get a little angry I was you know short-tempered I, want, I I had trouble letting him be who he was now I wanted my old dad back and, it, and I, I finally recognized it in myself so, um, thankfully took a shorter time than it took him but um you know it's like being orphaned while they're still alive.
1: And what is, what is Alzheimer's? Just explain a bit about it.
2: Well, I want to say up front that I, in no way, present myself or in any way became an expert medically or neurologically about the disease. What I became an expert somewhat on being a son and a caregiver. So, you know, of course, I read a lot of the studies and looked into things but that's not really my area and or really my interest because it's like when you're putting out fires, you can't investigate the um, the chemistry of how a fire works. So I, I was pretty much hands on putting out fires for a long time because for example, my mom became incontinent fairly early on and my dad was in denial about it so I had to watch him still take her out to a restaurant where she would be EP-ing in her pants, and you would have to bring changes of underwear to restaurants and try to deal with it in the restroom. And You know, things were so in my face, I was just trying to help them just and get by rather than doing any kind of scholarly investigations of Alzheimer's, so I'm not going to be able to give you any more than you can find yourself if you Google the research, because it's What I did learn early on is that that there was nothing and there remains nothing that's really been found to be effective or clinically proven in adults, I mean in in humans. Um, Every other day there's some sensationalist headline about a breakthrough but when you read the fine print it's with mice and it's five years away from clinical trials with humans. The drugs they have Has not shown any real um, convincing results apart from possibly in some cases slowing the process down a few
1: months. I wouldn't steer this interview in the direction of scholarly scientific knowledge if that's what you're... No, no, I was just trying to get your your own personal view on it. That was really it. Uh, How did the book Blue Sky and White Clouds come about?
2: Well that was an amazing story. You know, my mom very gradually lost all language and communication skills. She went from not knowing, for example, where the laundry room was in the house, to then the next step was not knowing what the laundry room was for. And then the last step was not recognizing the word laundry. So there's like a slow deterioration of language. Um, My brother, who's a psychologist, told me there have been studies that could be argued that people with various forms of dementia unlearn language in the same, in the reverse order that they learned it. So when a child is learning language, they, they come up with a general um, category of things like uh, plants, And then over time, they begin to distinguish a flower from a tree and then maybe a rose from a carnation, which is a lot more sophisticated. And in my mother's case, we watched it go in reverse, where one day I noticed she was referring to the telephone as the machine and the vacuum cleaner as the machine. And she knew enough that mechanical objects were machines, but she had kind of devolved from specific labels into uh, general categories, which is very interesting to watch. And then from there, she gradually lost all of her English and created a, a very engaging um, gibberish language of her own. But she continued to connect directly to people eye to eye and engage in conversations using complete gibberish. And it depended on the person's ability. To respond, I was very good at it. So we would have very long conversations that sounded like um, my mother would say, "Oh, the mingleman, this and this, noodle mingle, the desolat." And I would say, "Yeah, I think the mingleman is ma. And she goes, "Oh, you too. Well, then tomorrow we can talk chica la you. you know, some English words, some non. Eventually, no English words. But there was a cadence, a conversational cadence. She was experiencing some sort of meaning. And the most important thing is that it was the sense of connection and back and forth. There were, you know, I remember people, uh,
3: friends would approach me with this deep look of sadness on their face and, and hesitation and very gently say to me... Um, Does your mother still
2: know who you are? As if that was the worst possible outcome of the disease. And I would think to myself, and even say to them, Hey, you know, I don't even know who I am. Why should I care if she knows who I am? And the point was, I still felt when we were connecting in these words and in these uh, moments of eye contact and touch, I felt that... Connected, in fact, more connected than I ever had during my life because I actually grew up um, with a difficult mom who had come out of the Holocaust bringing a lot of baggage of fear, terror, um, avoidance of others. Like, you know, it was difficult for me to bring friends to the house. It wasn't a comfortable household because my mother had a lot of Holocaust-related uh, behavior and really emotions wasn't even aware of, but I slowly became aware of. And as the Alzheimer's developed, all of that dropped away. And almost for the first time since I was a child, I discovered the most beautiful, sweet, loving, almost angelic person emerging from my mom. And it was a real healing in our relationship. I know not everybody has that experience, uh, because Well, even my mother went through a period when she was very violent, and some people, that's all they ever get to experience. There was a point 10 years ago where my mom was chasing people with steak knives, curling heavy objects across the room, and interestingly, every time she saw herself in the mirror, she would scream at herself, and we eventually had to put her in a psych ward only for 10 days, and we were
3: lucky in that they found a medication that calmed her down without doping her up, and sent her home after 10 days on 400 milligrams
2: of called Seroquel, an antipsychotic. And in a fairly short time, we weaned her from 400 milligrams down to 12.5,
3: which is nothing. It's probably a placebo, but it enables her to fall asleep at around 8 at night and sleep through the night. And it's been a
2: godsend. And she's still on these 12 ever again became violent she's been sweet ever since and like I said not doped up Um, I visited many nursing homes and memory units and most of them, even the top notch top rated ones remain kind of sad scenes of people zoning out in wheelchairs possibly over medicated certainly under visited and I just was grateful that my dad had managed to set aside enough money to care for them at home which is what they would have wanted and so they get very good one-on-one care i never told i never answered the question about the book
1: yeah that's i was i was i was gonna ask now
2: so I, what i was leading up to was she had no language ability, and then one day i walked into the living room and she was sitting there flipping through a magazine she still enjoyed the pictures uh, or, or usually uh, often books about old Hollywood stars that she recognized and she liked looking at the photos, but I heard her reading the big print headlines out loud in English and it was a, it was a revelation, I it was just like stunned, you know, in my mind I'm like, oh my god, mom can still read, it's just that she can't read a paragraph or a book but she can read three or four words. So I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just run out today and I'll buy her a picture book designed for dementia patients. Meaning, in my mind, I envisioned a book that just had beautiful pictures with a simple caption. And it's kind of like a kid's book. But when I looked through kid's books, none of them would have worked for my mother because she's not into cartoons, animation, illustration, monsters, all the subject matter. Beautiful, realistic photographs of, you know, a, tr- a flower in bloom or a baby sleeping or a snow-covered tree. You know, she- very simple but beautiful eloquent photos. There was nothing like that and there was nothing specifically designed for dementia patients which really surprised me. I searched Barnes & Noble which is our big chain over here, I don't know if it's in Ireland, and then I searched Amazon and those are the two main sources. And, and they had nothing on, you know, kept searching for books for dementia patients. Every book you found geared toward the caregiver. So I finally called the National Alzheimer's Association, I guess, of America. And they actually put me in touch with their librarian. And I asked this woman about it. And she thought and thought. She said, well, we have, we have over 20,000 books for caregivers. I said, no, 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 I'm talking the patient, the actual memory challenged adult. And she and she couldn't think of any. And then she did come up with one author who had a couple titles. A woman named Lydia Burdick. And I ordered them and they were they were good books and they're popular. But they too were cartoons. They were illustrated cartoons and not what I was had in mind. So I realized there was this amazing absence in the marketplace. Because there are millions and millions and millions of people with dementia diagnosed every day all over the world and it's growing. And so there's no, there are just virtually no books aimed at them. So I created it,
1: came up with the idea. And um, have, you, have you seen the book? I have. It's beautiful. It's, it, the illustrations are amazing. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's a very simple concept. I, I, I used to joke to myself, you know, I, I've published a novel and two or three self-help books and lots of articles and I once had a psychic tell me when I was in my late 20s that, oh, one day your books will be read by millions. I had this thought that maybe this this will be the fruition of that prediction that millions of people will read my book except none of them will know me, know who I am, remember who wrote it, and it'll be a simple picture book with a few captions after trying to be a writer all my life. But in any event, yeah, it's a simple concept. Each page, like you can see, just has a very beautiful realistic photo and then two to three to word caption. And my mother, who's had Alzheimer's going on 16 years, there was a period of, I would say, five to seven years when it was perfect for her. You know, if you're too early into it, then the book could be an insult because it seems like this is too simple for me. I don't need this, it's almost like a kid's book. And then if you're too far gone, like my mother now doesn't look at any books or or anything, but there was a good five to seven years in there when she was in the perfect niche to enjoy this kind of thing, and she did. She used to spend time with it, studying the pictures, caressing the faces of the people in the pictures, and then sometimes reading the captions And I've heard from others who have written me that people who are a little more with it would read the captions and it would trigger memories, conversations, and it was really an opportunity to have an activity between the caregiver and the caregiver, because it's very hard to come up with things to do besides the people in front of the television. You know, I used used to go to these memory units and they would list all the activities and they would say, 10 o'clock, game time. So I would go look and there'd be a room of 10, 15 people in wheelchairs, at least 10 of them were, you know, at least half of them asleep. The ones that are awake are barely awake and then there's this poor young cheerleader in front of the room trying to engage them and throwing a balloon back and forth. I mean, there's very, it's really hard to come up with Things to engage dementia patients.
1: And this was one that seemed to work for people at a certain stage. Sounds like um, the book really hits on whatever st- stage the people become, kind of makes them still appreciate life in some way.
2: You're a lot younger than me, I take it, so you haven't run into this yet, correct?
1: No, I'm, I'm still in my 20s, so I'm miles behind. Parents
2: are alive and well?
1: Yes, they are.
2: Enjoy them.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: So I want to talk about your other stuff as well. Describe to us how you became interested or found holistic medicine or spirituality. I've never been a holistic medicine guy, I I have to tell you that. Although my shelves are filled with
3: hundreds of dollars of supplements and herbs, that I always think are going to do something. Well, let me put it this way. One of my more popular books
2: was a humorous memoir called The 99th Monkey, Spiritual Journalist misadventures with gurus, messiahs, sex, psychedelics, and other consciousness-raising adventures, experiments. And um, the point of that book, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, but basically it was a history of my resistance to all the healing modalities that I had tried and were offered and that other people swore by. So I'm definitely not a spokesperson for holistic medicine and I continue to struggle with my own energy levels and health and arthritis and various and mental states, um, so I, when I looked at your website, I, I thought to myself, oh God, I hope he's not hoping I'm going to inspire people with some new and popular way to get happy, because I, I'm, if anything, I have a history as, as a sort of a
1: famous, resistant, depressive um but we all have a bank of experiences and stories and that's what the show is kind of chasing. Instead of chasing the the gurus or the, the narcotics or the consciousness, we're more about, you know, how can we change ourselves to be like them, but in normal life.
2: Right, yeah, sometimes life itself has to force you into that position as it did to me, because I did spend a lot of years chasing. You know, I met so many famous spiritual leaders And I always, in my younger days, my ego would kind of be patting myself on the back as if it meant something about me uh, that I I had personally met all these famous spiritual leaders. And and then one day I woke up and I realized, oh, I know what it means about me. It means I have very low (laughs) self-esteem. I'm trying to build it up through association. And, you know, I've had the good fortune of meeting enough of these people on a more intimate level to eventually realize that you know, my mother was way ahead of her time. She used to let me know that in in her words, everybody looks the same in their underwear. And I'm I'm not I'm not
3: dismissing the
2: wisdom that's out there, but we are all human beings.
1: So you met all these amazing gurus like the Dalai Lama and Messiahs and you got to um experiment with all these people and therapies and and so on how did your your folks feel about it um, you doing all this stuff
2: well my my father was um, said reading the 99th monkey scared the hell out of him just uh, I I would often not exactly tell them everything I was up to and then he read about it after it was published and he thanked me for not telling him because he would have been worried sick to know that I was in the jungles of Brazil taking some ancient shamanic potion which now is pretty well known among the new age crowd at you know ayahuasca but back then it was a little bit more unknown and so very frightening for him to imagine me in the jungle and the way I described it involved a lot of throwing up, which comes along with ayahuasca. And, uh, you know, I remember other people hearing voices from deities and beings and angels while they were under the influence. And the only voice I kept hearing was my mother saying, what are you doing? You're in the middle of the jungle in Brazil, drinking this disgusting Hazarai, which is the Jewish word for, for junk. And, you know. Those are the voices I heard. So it scared him, but I, like I said, I protected them a fair amount from some of the more crazy things I went through, like living at S1, living at Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with it over there, but it was the first um, major new age human potential growth center, workshop center where... all is said and done, looking back. It's like the Dalai Lama said, you know, there's, you go into a New Age bookstore, spiritual bookstore, and there's a shelf of thousands or hundreds of Buddhist books, and yet you meet the Dalai Lama, and all he says is, my religion is kindness, and it kind of sums up everything you need to know. He only took that one phrase with you. You never have to read another Buddhist book. And... You know, I learned that over time that just simply being, working at being a kind, loving, open person, certainly doing no harm,
3: preferably being part of the solution, uh, you know, that's, you're way ahead of the game if you could accomplish that much. Wow. Those things, those things I didn't really learn from all my studies and meditations and gurus. I learned that from caring for my parents, caring for other people. I was a chaplain in the hospital for a while. So it comes through service, I think, is the key. Uh, and service is, you know, it's it's not altruism. It's not because you're a good guy and
2: you're helping other people. Um, I had a teacher point this out to me early on. His name was Stuart Emery. He was an, an S trainer uh, who became his own uh, leader in his own right. and. People would thank him for serving them and helping all this, and he would just get annoyed and yell at them. He goes, there, is no, there are no noble motives. It serves me to serve you. So, you know, service is a path, and it's helpful to us. But ironically, paradoxically, it's not helpful to us if we're doing it in order to benefit. But if we're truly surrendered and serving to serve, not expecting or hoping or wanting anything for ourselves ironically, paradoxically, we do receive. It's the old Christian thing to give is to receive the more you let go and give of yourself, the more that comes to you but not if you're doing it for that reason
1: You just hit on a, a, a gem there, which is I think brilliant to say, um, with your level of experience. How did it feel getting a um, the award for the 99 Monkeys? I, I actually got an award for not some ninety-nine monthly book. I got it for a novel, a work of fiction called Minion. Minion is a Hebrew word uh, which refers to the quorum that traditional Judaism requires—a a quorum of ten men—to have a
2: prayer service. In this day and age, uh, uh, certain denominations that are more progressive uh, allow, allow women to count. But my book was called Minion ten Jewish men in a world that is heartbroken and it was um, semi-autobiographical based on a lot of guys I grew up with living in New York City in search of God and truth in search of women and in search of uh, the best deli sandwich in New York and the autobiographical part again goes back to what we were talking about it describes in there how my mother used to keep an axe under her bed whenever my dad was away on business. And this was in Lawn, New Jersey, which is the safest suburb you can imagine. I mean, there, there, there wasn't even a bad part of town. It was just a very normal, safe. And yet, here I was in a household where my mother had an axe under the bed, which kind of created an atmosphere of terror And it wasn't until in my 30s or 40s, even when I spoke to her younger brother, who also incidentally has already died of Alzheimer's, her brother said to me, well, you know what the axe was about, don't you? And I said, no, actually I don't. And he said, well, on the night of Kristallnacht, which was German for the night of the shattering glass, and that was really the the, the incident that triggered World War II. It was the night the Germans destroyed, went on a rampage, destroying Jewish businesses and homes and breaking windows. And that night, they broke into my mother's house. They broke down the front door with an axe. And the axe landed at my grandmother's feet. And my grandmother picked up the axe, handed it back to these Nazis, and said, I I believe this belongs to you. And at that point, all of their friends, who were Christian neighbors, came out and chased the guys away. I mean, they were really just a couple of probably young Nazi thugs. It wasn't like a big army. They coupled two, three kids in uniform. But that ax obviously had a symbolic
1: meaning to my mother because it managed to travel, you know, across the sea and across 30 years and wind up under her bed years later, leaving me in a state of terror thinking at any moment. Someone, or the Nazis, might be breaking down our door in Fairlawn, New Jersey. So that's the backdrop of the novel Minion, which, yes, it was one of 400 entries. It won first place. It was um, was a wonderful 15 minutes of fame. (laughs) (laughs) Being Jewish uh, background, and when you went to outfits, did it make you have an experience? to spike up your hairs in the back because of what your mom had told you and what she experienced to what you were? Did that two stories connect in your head when you went to to that area? I, I attended a 10-day retreat led by a then master named Bernie
3: Glassman, who's pretty well known in America and maybe elsewhere. He actually played a low profile in the retreat.
2: He said Auschwitz was the teacher, not him. And they basically, we went the coldest time of the year intentionally, and we spent all day long outdoors freezing. I had seven layers on. I mean, after doing the basic tour, which is a horror, horrific tour where you hear, like, for example, a room filled to the brim with Jewish hair, or another room filled to the brim with hairbrushes and shoes and things like this and torture chambers and gas and the crematoriums. And, you know, you saw all that and you saw films of the horrors. But then the rest of our retreat, we basically spent sitting on what was called the selection area, which is where the trains, the cattle cars, uh, which my great grandmother was on actually, would pull into Auschwitz slash Birkenau. There were two concentration camps that were connected and the selection site was in Birkenau and as people got off the train Dr. Um, Mengele who was a very famous evil Nazi doctor whose favorite research was to kill Jewish twins baby twins at the same time and compare certain things and he did horrific experiments to see how hot or how cold the body could, could get before it would die and anyway he would um, stand there, and as people got off the train, he would point to the left or the right. And if he pointed to the right, it meant they, the person would go to the concentration camp and work until they died, basically starved or died. die. If they pointed to the left, it meant they would then straight to the gas chambers. And there was a um, description of a guy who, a Jewish guy who managed to get a job working for him in his office, which was a cushy job, all things considered, but he said he would watch in the morning tens of thousands of people being herded in one direction, and then about five hours later, truckloads of ash driving away in the other direction. So it was very poignant, to say the least. But anyway, the form of our retreat was to sit at that very site and read aloud the names of the victims and you know there were counting there were not only Jews there were uh, gypsies homosexuals there, there were there were more like 11 million names who died at Auschwitz and we wouldn't get through all of them but we had someone in each of the four directions north south east west simultaneously just reciting the names of the dead and what was interesting is um, on this retreat it Junes were only a handful. There were people from all over the world and all denominations, including children of Nazis. And we would have small sharing groups. And it was remarkable to connect with children of Nazis and realize they grew up in a very similar atmosphere of silence. Like in my household, it was never spoken of. I knew there was something mysterious and evil behind the scenes because if we were if my dad was flipping through the TV channels and we stumbled on a newsreel of the Nazis or Hitler uh, or the army goose-stepping or any images from the Holocaust my mother would freak out and be horrified and turn her face away my dad would quickly change the TV station and I had no
3: idea what, what that was about I could just sense the horror there was something I thought there was something horrible living inside our
2: TV but it was never addressed. And hooking up with these children of the Gestapo and and other Nazi leaders, uh, they grew up in a very similar atmosphere of silence and sensing that there was something evil in the background that they weren't permitted to learn. So they had very similar wounds and it was very healing to talk to them and as humans and meet with them. At some point, there was a big controversy
1: because some of them felt that the everybody who died in Auschwitz, including the Gestapo uh, soldiers and the agents who died, should have their names memorialized. And there was a big brouhaha and discussion and argument. And finally, the way it got resolved was someone said, well, after we finish reading the 11 million names of the victims, we can start reading the names of the perpetrators who died here. And that's how that got resolved. (laughs) Did you feel a connection being Jewish and experiencing the aftermath of what happened? Or how did it feel for you at that moment? Well, I, I learned that there was a syndrome I was a part of that I never knew called second generation Holocaust survivors. And I guess there are a lot of us out here who had parents involved in the Holocaust and who inherited, in my case, I would say a deep fear of being myself in the world and you know that's probably why I devoted 40 years to self-expression to workshops to trying to break through come out find who I really am etc um I I think that it is a syndrome and um yeah being at Auschwitz you kind of look at it right in the square in the face And you're praying, and you're singing, and you're connecting with other people. And the whole thing definitely was helpful. I didn't cure me of it, but it it helped open some doors and helped lighten the load a little bit. You say that you you went through different religions. Did it increase your fondness towards Judaism, or did you just have an open mind to everything?
2: It's funny. I've almost come full circle to where I started. I could almost describe me as a secular humanist. But that's after years with um, Ram Dass involved in Hinduism in my early 20s. Many, many silent Buddhist retreats, um, which I still resonate with. uh, Connecting with several progressive Jewish renewal rabbis, some of whom I'm still connected with and even co-teach with. Um, I had a very fond connection with a Christian mystical monk who passed away. named made Father Theophane, and spent a little bit of time at his monastery. Uh, and I lived in a community surrounded by Sufis and some sheikhs and murshidas who were leaders. One of my best friends is a murshida, which is a senior teacher in the Sufi world. And I participated in a lot of their events. So I I lived at the Lama Foundation for a while, which is an ecumenical spiritual community in New Mexico where all the religions are practiced and represented, including Native American. There's an Indian tribe whose land that the Lama Foundation settled on. So I was exposed to all of it, I embraced all of it, I I would jump into their native practices in each tradition with full heart and soul. And eventually I recognized that the fundamental impulse at the core was identical. And one thing that helped me with that was um, some of the late Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who he died about a year ago at 80-something, 86 maybe. He was a Holocaust survivor who escaped. He became a very orthodox, traditional Hasidic rabbi with the Lubavitch Chabad sect in Brooklyn. And he eventually got excommunicated by them for being too far out. He ended up taking LSD with Tim Leary, and he ended up rewriting the liturgy to change all the he's to she's when referring to God. You know, he feminized the the, the liturgy. So he was, a, he was a rule breaker and a pathfinder, and he. I was at a workshop with him once where he had divided the room into about five groups, and he had one group singing the Hindu chant to God, or one of them, Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram, and with this with a melody that worked with it harmonically. He had another group singing the Muslim. Uh, Ilaha, he had a group of people doing the Jewish fundamental prayer Shema Yisrael and Elohim Adonai, Adonai He had a Christian group singing the Kyrie Eleison. He had a Buddhist group uh, chanting Gatte Gatte Tara Gatte. And and if you looked at the translations, it wasn't hard to find you know pretty much that they were saying something very similar. Particularly, interestingly enough, the Jewish and Muslim primary prayer is almost identical. La ilaha illallah means there is no god but God, or another way of saying that is everything is God. And Shemais Rovnail Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad could be interpreted to mean something very, very similar. So, he kind of brought it all together and helped me see that there was one impulse at the core of my being, the religious impulse, the spiritual impulse, the expression or desire for wholeness of being, and that that could be expressed and explored in any number of paths, including no paths. You know like I said the path of service is a path, but it's not particularly uh it doesn't it's not owned by any one religion guru or one tradition it's a human thing and there are many humans out there who have never set foot in a mosque or a synagogue or an ashram and they're the most spiritual loving kind people you've ever met. It's like Ramdas
1: you got you familiar with Ramdas over there he he was the no
2: pioneer of Okay, Brambas was a pioneer in America for the counterculture, spiritual movement. He wrote the book Be Here Now, and Be Here Now is is like a cliché.
1: 40 years going through each religion, finding the gurus, the messiahs, who they are and what they are. Do you think people should do that or just live lives the way they should be, or what do you think?
2: I don't think people should or shouldn't do anything that I say. <laughs> <laughs> they need to follow their, their heart, their gut, their passion, their desire, their yearning, their need, and see where it takes them. Um, you know, for some people I'm sure it remains appropriate to find a qualified,
1: respected teacher and surrender for a time or for a lifetime to a particular path. It just hasn't been the way I ended up going. But I wouldn't, you know, presume to say that's not right for some people. I don't think there's a formula or an answer that I can offer you on that, Aaron. And did you feel that you went through all this time going through each therapy, each master and so on and let's just say you went to a psychic and they said 10 years, you're going to have these books, you're going to win these awards. How did you take it with a, pinch, with a pinch of salt or how did you take it?
2: You know, I, I think things either stick or they don't. I mean, I remember when, when I was 23 and took S training, which was very one of the first and, uh, of, of the intensive 2 weekend courses where you sat in a chair from eight in the morning until two or three the following morning, and you did that for two days in a row and came back and did it two days the next weekend. And it was the prototype for many of what things are still out there today. They didn't let you take any notes. And basically what they were saying is, you know, if there's anything worthwhile in here, You're going to get it, and it'll be real for you and your experience. And it's not going to be anything you can write down, remember, study, practice. So, you know, I did so many things over the years, and I I stopped trying to keep it straight, or or I, I just assumed. I just went through it all assuming that anything real and valuable would land in a deep enough place that it would live inside me. If it didn't, it wasn't really worth it. Um, in the first place. Lately, once a year, I come out of my re- relatively secular life and I become a, uh, what I call a rented Jew. Um, I co lead a one week silent retreat with the rabbi and his wife. I serve as a musician, leading two hour long chanting and meditation sessions using primarily Hebrew chants. I. Uh, it's, a, it's a Jewish retreat with Buddhist teachings and it's held in a Christian convent. A very
1: wonderful combination of tradition. Hmm. And I also teach a movement class based on my 35 years studying with Gabrielle Roth, who I would have to point to as one of the main influences in my life until she passed away a few years ago. It's interesting for me because I can drop in for one week and it's not inauthentic. I always go in thinking, oh, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I'm living my life like every other regular guy. I'm not meditating every day. I'm not singing and chanting every day. I'm not dancing. I'm not meditating. I'm here. I show up and for a week I'm teaching meditation. I'm teaching Gabrielle's movement work. I'm leading these very deep, prayerful chanting sessions, but the amazing thing is, is it's all once I get there, it all feels. You change anything or adjust anything that you should have done or could have done in that period of time?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think
1: everything you've learned is there one particular thing that you, you practice all the time or you would offer to the audience or what would it be? I'll
2: just huxley another famous
3: We left that, it was, we did one session with them and we went outside and looked at each other and said why don't we just try to be nicer to one another and you know that that worked and we saved a lot of money so um, I, I, I'm going to have to steal from the Dalai Lama and I, I don't have an original punchline but I think theirs are pretty
1: good excellent is there anything else that you have in the pipeline or anything that you're working on or anything that we should keep an eye out for I do want to do a follow-up Alzheimer's book, similar to Blue Sky, White Clouds, which actually people can look for at blueskywhiteclouds.com, by
2: the way. Um, I want to do a very similar book, but aimed at a Jewish audience. I dedicated Blue Sky, White Clouds to my mom. I want to do one dedicated to my dad now with primarily Jewish content, I just think there's another audience that's for that. Um, I probably have some more books in me. I mean, there's a 300-page unfinished novel that's been sitting around for 10 years. Mostly, I'm I'm managing, you know, my parents' care still as my priority in life, and there's a little bit of me that's on hold, wondering who I'll be, what I'll be, what I'll do, when that isn't the number one daily priority, even though I'm not living with them, it's still a daily priority, and my my wife has a father, we help out also, and I have a friend who's dying, I seem to be in the the end of life, uh, helping mode at the moment, people keep getting ill or dying on me, and I seem to be the one who shows up, so that might be a calling that I just haven't named yet, so the answer to your question is, I don't know. I don't know excellent
1: Um, just remind the audience of where we can find you
2: well my name is a little hard that's the the name of my website eliezersolval.com but it's easier to remember it's blueskywhiteclouds.com which takes you to a page within my website from there they could explore outward I think that's the easiest is blueskywhiteclouds.com and then from there you can go to the homepage which is my name eliasersolbel.com, and no one can know how to spell that. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't a good marketer when I created the
1: website. I want to say thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come onto the show and share what you got to share.
2: Oh, it was a pleasure, Aaron. I'm. I'm so touched and appreciative that you uh, chose to ask me to come on.
3: Ah,
0: Brent. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.
1: Thank you for listening to the show. If you find this show very interesting or want to listen to more, please subscribe to iTunes, Holistic Therapies, by Sanseet or go to sanseet.com to subscribe there. If you really like the show, please leave a review or a rating on iTunes or a comment on facebook.com slash